0: okay perfect good morning. good morning I am honored it's, uh, Kyung was telling me it's the fourth time i'm i can't believe that it's been great every time and I'm honored that you'd have me back after once <laughs> but uh, so at least we're Connecting with each other, I did notice that there was a Florida state uh oh. yeah, here we go let get we can get the, we can get the uh, Tomahawk hotshaw going. We need to talk afterwards. I didn't get a chance to get to you beforehand. I do want to m- uh, clarify one thing young uh you know does have sometimes an accent, but he he said I was the center of the decade, not center of the decade in the, <laughs> although <coughs> uh, you know it's center with a t, not center, although I was plenty of that also <laughs> um, I, I just got to say it's very very intimidating having to follow that worship time that was just a very powerful meaningful time I, I, I want to say thank you to the worship group again I don't yeah we can you can clap <laughs> them that, was, that was <clears throat> I uh, hope you guys appreciate the uh, quality of the uh, worship that that uh, you guys have. That was Amen. powerful and it's really unfair to have me try to follow that. <laughs> so as a little transition I'll tell you the latest joke that I heard trying to uh, set a parameter there. Um, these two uh, TV discs were um, placed on a building next to each other and they began to notice each other and begin uh, talking and flirting and eventually fell in love and these two discs decided to get married, and, and they did, and uh, I was just here to report that the wedding wasn't very good, but the reception is great. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right, now you've forgotten all about worship, and let's go on to something. Uh. Let me start by bringing you a greeting from your brothers and sisters from both Chico and around the state. One of the things, as Kyung uh, alluded to, I do is I, I get to meet with uh, your brothers and sisters who are fighting the good fight all over the state, uh, not only in Chico. Uh, one group that I would ask you to pray for specifically is the uh, group of legislature uh, legislators that are in our state capital. We meet weekly. There's a group of us that meet weekly to... Uh, encourage one another in their faith for prayer and to, to study the scriptures and to try to figure out what it would look like to follow Jesus in that arena. Now these group, this group of men and women realize that the problems this state is facing are not going to be solved by better legislation, they're not going to be solved by better policy, more taxes, less taxes, more this party, more that party. They're going to be solved when we can get to access to the human heart. Because the major problems we're facing are issues of the human heart, and there's only been one leader who has been able to transform the human heart. And these men and women understand that, and they're trying to figure out how to make that reality happen in our state capitol. So they are worthy of your consideration and pray, uh, prayer. So please, please, please think about them and pray for them. Pray that they would be able to figure out a way to winsomely and... Um, effectively uh, open up an embassy for Jesus in that in that capital, and uh, and they are they believe that it's going to come through the prayers of faithful people from around the state. So uh, if you would join us in that effort, we sure would appreciate it. But I do bring you a greeting, and that there are still, you know, uh, remember when Elijah said, "Oh God, I'm the only one left that's you know trying to staying faithful to you," and He said, "No, I've got people all over." That are staying faithful. Well, I'm here to tell you, you got friends all over uh, that are praying for you and praying for us in this time, but also asking you to pray for them so that we can form this sort of network of the kingdom of God all over our state. We desperately need it. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, through your friends, you told us if we would be still, that we would know that you are God. So in obedience and by faith, we're going to be still for a second. We're going to shrug our shoulders and drop our arms. We're going to let go of all the burdens and the pressures and the distractions and the activities and the things that take our attention and we're going to be still. We are gathering here here in the spirit of that stillness so that we can know that you are God. Enter in this stillness. In the spirit of Mary, the one that you commended, who sat still at your feet and listened to what you had to say, and your commendation of her was, this is the one thing that is necessary. In the spirit of that Mary, we come and we sit still at your feet and we listen, Lord. Speak to us now. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are open to what you have to teach us so that we can be conformed to the image of our precious Jesus. When we leave here, Jesus, may we look more like you somehow, some little measure, some one degree, some one simple way may we look, think, act, talk, believe, just a little bit more like you do. And all these things we ask in your name, the one who came to prove to us that the Father's love is there for us to access. That we are your beloved sons and daughters. That all your favor rests on us. In your name we pray it. Amen. What the world needs is a group of men like yourself that are committed to being like Jesus. One of the problems with what we have done in the, in the church, and, and I, I use the, little, the word little c, the institutions, is that we have reduced following Jesus to a group of meetings where we come and hear talks like this and, 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 and worship like we did which are all important and all are great and all are wonderful, and as you experienced, it just is a fantastic thing. But what Jesus came to do was to create a band of brothers and sisters who were kingdom-minded people, who became ambassadors of His invisible, unseen kingdom. And by being those ambassadors, they carried the kingdom with them so that every place that they stood or lived or worked became, in fact, a part of the kingdom they represented as those ambassadors. But if we're going to be those kind of ambassadors, we've got to know the heart of the king. We have got to be listening to him and only speaking the dispatches that he gives us authority to speak. We've got to know the heart of our king, which is the heart of a father first. And we need to know his message that he asked us to speak as aliens in this world taking his kingdom with us and establishing embassies. And that message is this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not counting the sins of people against them. Now, we, the world needs a group of people that are captured by that reality because it has become their reality. They're not talking about, the the, the problem that we face as the church is we're talking about something that we've heard other people talk about and we in effect, like Brennan Manning said, have become travel agents selling tickets to places we've never been. And the world sees right through that and they're saying, no thank you, I've got my own set of problems, I don't need to take yours too. And we need to become those Fully invested ambassador disciples. And that discipleship program is really an apprenticeship program. It is a mentoring program. We need to become mentees and apprentices of Jesus. And we need to let Him teach us. And and then you need to gather like this, because there are people in this room who have been apprenticing with Jesus, who have been mentored by Jesus for a while, and, and we can learn from one another the things that that Jesus is teaching, and then we can learn from Him together. And we need to be together in groups like this and into maybe smaller groups. And we need to start practicing the disciplines. And, you know, if you've read anything about this, the disciplines historically have been broken up into two different categories. There's the disciplines of abstinence, those things that we don't do. And then there are the disciplines of engagement, those things that we're asked to do. Abstinence are things like solitude, silence, simplicity, um, retreat. Engagement are things like Bible study, worship, fellowship, prayer. Now we don't do the disciplines so that we can earn God's favor or to try to manipulate God in any way. We do the disciplines because they empty us of the things that distract us from the love of God and becoming fully devoted to Him. The disciplines is is the... Ancients used to say we're vaquer deos. They created vacancies in us so that that vacancy would be filled with God Himself and then we would be these ambassadors in these very temples and vessels of God by emptying ourselves of things that are distractions and filling ourselves with the one thing that is necessary. That's what the disciplines are about. We've turned the disciplines into sort of proving your mettle proving that you're worthy of God's love and worthy to be one of His uh, special agents or whatever. And that's not what they were ever meant to be. All the disciplines were ever meant to be were a way of training us, of showing us even where our weaknesses are so that we could then enter into His strength. They were a way of proving to us that the things of this world aren't, fulfilling, and then to step into and make a vacancy for God to come in and to fill us so that we would be those kind of people that not only talk about the love of God but have experienced it and are offering something we've experienced, not something we've heard about. That is what this world needs. And we've got to begin to submit to that. We cannot reduce our relationship to God to a gathering like this, listening to a talk, singing songs, but we've got to be engaged in taking that engaged Changed life in penetrating our culture with the love and the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the acceptance and the embracing of this wonderful King Jesus. We become kingdom-minded people, demonstrating kingdom principles with kingdom economies and kingdom rule of law, which is love itself. Does this make sense? Yeah. Now, that's easier said than done, and that's the whole concept of the spiritual life. I want us to look at a process of a discipline. You are doing that by even being here this morning. This is a discipline. And as you know, on a Saturday morning when that alarm clock rang, at whatever time it rang for you, that's what discipline. We are denying ourselves of another minute of sleep or of sitting and watching the first morning edition of uh, ESPN Sports Center or, or reading you know, about what the giants and the A's or whatever did. And we are denying ourselves that that we think can bring us pleasure and which could bring a measure. And we are making an opening where we can come and experience what happens when we open ourselves to the presence of God. But we want to go, I think a theme of this church is beyond good to great. We want to go beyond our sense of... uh, comfortableness from knowing that we are connected to God and our eternal destiny is secured to knowing that and then saying then that then should change the way I experience life here until I get there. We want to go from good to great. I want to read you a passage, Hebrews 12. If you have a Bible, turn with me there. We're going to be looking at a lot of stuff in your Bible, so we'll keep you uh, going here. Oh, by the way, Kyung, I didn't ask you, what time do I need to be done? 11? Okay. Okay, I'll be done by 11.30 for sure. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. You know, uh, the uh, joke, you know what it means when the pastor looks at his watch during a sermon? It means that he has a watch. That's what it means. (laughs) That's all it means. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down to verse 4. I'm reading out of the New International Version with southern accents. Yours yours might sound a little different than mine. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. In this part of this this letter, uh, we're not sure who exactly wrote it, a lot of historically or traditionally they think Paul, but whoever wrote it, the author, is picking up a sports image, which is right on, you know, we love the sports image. But he puts us in a stadium, and we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I used to imagine that the witnesses were people that were sitting around observing that what we then were doing, and that's certainly true. But having read the previous chapter about the Hall of Faith, the honorees in in God's hall of faith, I think these witnesses are not just passively observing how we're doing, but they are actively yelling at us encouragement about how faithful God is, no matter what the circumstance. So having so great a cloud of witnesses, not only watching us, but encouraging us through their testimony through the centuries, telling us that we can trust God, that God is faithful, that God is there, that God is present, that God cares, that He is powerful and that He is loving. They are reminding us of the great character of our God and how He always intervenes in redemptive love. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin, both of which so easily entangle us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, in exchange for the joy that was out in front of Him, He endured the cross even though He despised the shame that going to that cross brought Him and the family and those He loved. And He sat down at the right hand of God in the throne of God. Now consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know what the world in which you live needs to see? They need to see men who are committed to running this race and who have done what it takes to develop their spiritual cardiovascular endurance so that they do not lose heart and have heart failure. What the world needs to see, that there are a few who are so consumed by Jesus that when the difficulty comes and when we are pushed in this race, we don't just give up and we don't have Heart failure. We don't become weary and worn out in our struggle to stay with Jesus. Now, the image here of the race is a, is a good image. He is not literally telling us we need to be running all the time. He's not. I, I met um, Scott, um, Josh, and Josh is a runner. That convicts a lot of us, me especially, you know, to be out <laughs> running. But I don't think that the author here is encouraging us to get out and run, necessarily, literally. A race is a course with a beginning and an end. He's saying, I want you to run the course of life set before you. Running talks about energy exertion. In other words, in a very powerful image, he is saying, I want you to put forth whatever energy it will take to complete your Destiny. Get to the destination that I've set before you. Fulfill your destiny. I want you to put forth whatever energy, the same energy you would put in getting ahead in your business, the same energy you would put in your best hobby, the same energy you would put in your relationships with your wife and children. I want you to put that kind of running energy into your destiny. And who can tell me what is the destiny of all men? Any good Presbyterians in here? The first point in the Westminster Catechism Confession is this is the destiny of all men to know and love God forever. The race that you are running is this race for you to get to know and love God and embrace and experience this love that He has for you. That's where you need to put all your energy. So I want you to lay aside every encumbrance, everything that you might be carrying that's stumbling you up and keeping you from doing that, Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is a model for you on how to do this, so that when the difficult times come, you will not become heart-weary. Your heart won't give out on you, and you can continue in this most important endeavor in life of knowing God and His love and enjoying Him forever. Now when this passage talks about sin, I am convinced at this stage in my journey with Jesus that here he's not talking about the individual sins that, that we think about. He's not necessarily talking about an attitude of greed or, or prideful behavior or you know, acts of anger or lustful thoughts. He is defining sin here, in my opinion, As it's defined by Paul in his letter to the Romans, anything not of faith is sin. In other words, when we have lost confidence in God, when we can no longer trust Him in His love, His provision, His care, His protection, His compassion in us, and we begin to look at other things to satisfy us, that's the sin He's talking about. When we, if you remember the, the parable of the sowers, I'll just, and uh, uh, the seeds that were sown. You remember that one? He said, The kingdom of God's like a man who, who you know, scatters seed, and some seed falls here and some seed falls there, four different soils. And he said, Listen to this. Others, like the seed sown on the rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble and persecution come, they quickly fall away. Still others, like the seed sown among the thorns, they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things than the one thing necessary than running the race of learning how to love and embrace God as He loves and embraces us. The desire for other things come in and choke the word out, making it unfruitful. What I want us to look at today, I want us to look at a story of three faithful men who began and received the word with joy and went on a journey and were faced with a struggle against sin, this uh, this temptation to doubt God's love, to doubt God's provision, to doubt God's presence, to doubt God really had our best interest in our, and yet they did not lose heart. They stayed faithful. They kept the course. They laid aside everything that could choke it out and kept pressing in to this Jesus so that we can learn how we, from them and from their story, can develop that Spiritual cardiovascular endurance so that we don't lose heart in our struggle of laying aside every encumbrance, everything that chokes us out, every kind of thing that would deceitfully pull us away from this race of pressing into God and or the persecutions that inevitably come in a world that is in opposition and hostility to God. Does that make sense? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. You know, one of the reasons the Bible is so timeless is we're, we're in an age that some people call the postmodern, and, you know, the uh, postmodern thinkers don't necessarily like theological systems, and quite frankly, I don't blame them, I, I uh, can totally understand why, but what they do love is great stories, and historically, around the world, stories are the most powerful way to, to promote culture, promote values, promote, and, and here is one of the great stories of all history, if you ask me. It's the story of Daniel and his friends. You know, the story that uh, Israel got distracted. They got choked out. They just all forgot God. And God said, okay, I'm going to, if you're going to worship other gods, I'm going to send you into their countries to let you see what it really looks like to be connected to those kind of gods. And uh, then I want you to remember me, and I'll come back, and I'll bid out. But even when you go, I'll be with you. And and." Uh, The nation of Israel goes off into exile into Babylon and four people were mentioned in this one story of exile. Daniel and his three friends who were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they were taken into captivity into Babylon. And right before we pick up the story in in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and it disturbed him and it kept him from sleeping. and, And as we all know, when the leadership can't sleep, nobody gets to sleep. So he stirred up the pot and said to his spiritual advisors, uh, I had a dream. I need you to interpret it for me. And they said, well, fine, King, we'll be glad to do that. He said, no, uh, you guys have tricked me in the past, so this time I want you to not only tell me the interpretation of the dream, I want you to tell me the dream itself. And let me give you a little bit of motivation. If you don't tell me what the dream was and interpret it, I'm going to take you and I'm going to cut you into little pieces and I'm going to take your families and put them in your house and then take your house and burn it to the ground. So, good luck. <laughs> Take a day and think it over. <laughs> like, and there they go, what? Are you, you know, no king, no matter how great he ever was, you know, they're getting desperate now. So, it's like, no king, no, I mean, no king who ever lived in the history of the world ever asked something of his advisors. It's not possible. Only God could do something like that, and he doesn't live among men, he doesn't care about us. And Nebuchadnezzar said, "Okay, fine. Uh, I'll kill you all tomorrow." So they went. Ar- he sent Nebuchadnezzar sent his police force around, and they went to get Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were part of the spiritual advising team. And Daniel said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold it. I know a God that does live among men and does care about people, and He's able to save us. Give me the night. I'll pray about it, and let's see what happens." And the next day, he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, "Oh, King, I." I know your dream and I know the interpretation and he tells him the dream and he gives him the interpretation and King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and worships Daniel's God. And you remember it was the dream of a great statue that had a head and shoulders of gold, a chest of silver and a belly and thighs of of, uh, bronze yeah, I think, the, and then legs and feet of iron and clay, and he said this represents four kingdoms. The first kingdom is you, and that's the Babylonian kingdom. The second kingdom is going to be a kingdom that comes after you, and then the third is the third kingdom that comes after you, and then the fourth king is the fourth. The fourth part of the statue is the fourth kingdom that'll rule the world. And at the time of that fourth kingdom, there will be a rock that comes. It's made, not cut out of any mountain, and it's going to crush this statue down to pieces, and it will set up a kingdom that will rule forever. Of course, he was talking about Jesus. Now, parentheses, this doesn't really have anything about what we're talking about today, but do you, you know who some of those spiritual advisors were? They were the ma- magicians, the astrologers, and the magi. The magi who said, there is no God that cares about us. It'll save us from destruction and death. Until Daniel says, Yes, there is a God, and he gives you, and then he's gonna set up a kingdom one day that's gonna crush every other kingdom, and that kingdom's gonna reign forever. And it's a kingdom of justice, righteousness, and peace. It's a kingdom of a God who will enter into our pain and will save us from destruction and establish us in that kingdom. Now those magi had their life changed by seeing Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was the God of all gods, bow down to that God. And that God saved their lives and their families' lives. So those magi and those astrologers stayed together for 500 years until one day that star appears in the sky. And they come from the east, Babylon, across the Arabian desert, to Jerusalem, the capital of that king, and said, where is the one born king of the Jews? Because we have been waiting for this star for 500 years. Because we saw the king of all kings, Nebuchadnezzar, bow down to this king, and we've come to worship Him and offer Him our lives. Can I hear a, yes, God, yes, God? Well, anyway, that's all parentheses, forget all that. The next thing we find, we pick up our story, Nebuchadnezzar sort of gets it twisted. Instead of remembering the God that does hear the cries of His people for salvation and, and redemption and the God who's going to set up a kingdom and that that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped one day, he forgets about that and all he remembers is, oh yeah, I'm the statue, I'm the gold part, I'm the the king of all kings. And I think Daniel said that I'm supposed to be that. So what he does is then he creates a 90-foot high statue of gold of himself. (laughs) Dang. Now isn't that what happens to us? God does something really powerful and before we know it we twist it around and we make it about us and not about him. And I'm just going to read this story, all right? We're in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar then made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summons the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all other provincial officials, all the leadership, to come to the dedication of the image. He had set up So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as your heart hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, and all the musical instruments, all the people of the nations of men in every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. At this time, some of the astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Now, not all the astrologers had their hearts changed. Some became very jealous of Daniel and his friends because the king elevated them to the highest positions of authority. And some became very jealous. Instead of being grateful and thankful that these guys saved their lives and saved their families' lives, they became very bitter and jealous. So they denounced the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, king, live forever. You have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of all these musical instruments will fall down and worship your image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. Now there are some Jews. I don't want to mention any names, but their initials are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Whom you've set up. Little dig, you know, it's like, what they're not saying is, that's that kind of character judge you are. You didn't pick me, because I would have bailed down and worshipped you. You picked these guys. And you set them over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And they pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your God nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn and all these instruments, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Excuse me. I'll call you back later. (laughs) There. Yes, Lord, we're having a good time. (laughs) Um, Now, that's the question. That's the million-dollar question. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? I want you to take a minute and just pause and reflect. What is it that you fear the most? What is that thing that you spend most of your time distracting yourself from ever having to think about? What is that thing, if we were going to be honest, that a good portion of our religious activity, of our church services is really trying to hedge our bets against God ever letting that happen to us. What is that thing that lurks in the back recesses and corners of our locked doors of our mind that we would do anything not to have to go through? That if we were pushed, came to shove, we would wonder aloud, is there any God, including our God, that can save us from this? As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king of Nebuchadnezzar, God grant me, grant me one portion of this kind of heart strength, of this kind of endurance We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand. But even if He does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious, and his attitude towards them changed completely. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. And the commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his armor to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and his rage was so hot and furious that the temperature of the furnace killed the ones that threw the prisoners in. this isn't the greatest then the king Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement asked his advisors weren't there three men that we threw in the furnace and they replied certainly O king and then Nebuchadnezzar said look I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of god And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the burning furnace and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God that I just remembered, (laughs) that I bowed down to a little bit before here, come on out of here. And Nebuchadnezzar, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and rural advisors, and all the leaders of the whole country crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed, and their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Have you ever been to a campfire, and you sit around, and you're having a great time, and it doesn't get any better than this, and, you know, and you go home. (laughs) I just flashed on a commercial at TV, you know, it's like, we won't go there. But then you go home the next day or two, and And your wife goes, what's that, you know, and you go, "Well, yeah, I do smell like smoke. Now, we didn't even get that close to the fire. But God so protected them, so covered them, that they didn't even smell like smoke. Mm, That's right. I mean, we ought to be going. And then Nebuchadnezzar said praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angels and rescued and delivered his servants. They trusted in him. They had confidence in him. They fixed their eyes on him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces. This guy needed a little anger management class. Don't you, think? you know, It's like, and one to the other. As a matter of fact, we see he slips into a huge depression in the next chapter. So I mean, he, he had some issues. And that their houses be turned to piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way out of the mouth of infidels and pagans. Do we believe that? Now we're sitting here and say, oh look, you know, I'm not going to bow to any idol, come on, I've been going to Cornerstone for too long now, but let's stop for a second and analyze what, what the idols are. Israel in its history constantly, constantly struggled with what, they called it high places and sacred stones. Now, what are these things? We, we, we tend to think of them as, you know, setting up some image like Nebuchadnezzar, 90 feet tall, some, some literal thing and carved and, and we go, oh, we'd never do kind of that kind of stuff. But, but, but the image was just a sacrament. It was just some visual representation of an invisible reality, something that would remind us. I mean, the very idea here, when God created, in the ancient Near East, when a king conquered an area, when he began to set his dominion and his rule, and he set his, his laws and, and the way things worked over a region, he would create a statue of himself, and he would leave it in that place to remind people that his image was the one that set the, 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 the way the thing worked. Now, when God created the world and set his dominion over the world, he left his image, and we're it but all these other kings would set an image of themselves. And you were supposed to remember that He makes the rules, and He's the one that gives you life, and He's the one that makes your life work, and He's the one that's going to make life bearable, as you remember the image. Now what we do subtly and and quite honestly, a lot of times don't even realize it, what we do is we have a set of sacred stones or high places that are set up in our lives that we go to because we believe those are the places where we're really going to find life. And Israel had this problem. And one of the commandments throughout all the scriptures are, please, when you go into these places that I'm going to give you, tear down the sacred stones. Smash them. Don't let them stay. Get them out of your existence. Now, what's the sacred stone or high place? It's this. Remember when, G- when God took the, ne- the children of Israel across the Red Sea or through the Jordan River or, or uh, when uh, Jacob went back, you know, when on his sojourn came back into the land and they would always build a, an altar of stone. You know, God said, as you go through the Red Sea, I want each of the tribes to take a stone. I want you to take them on the other side and I want you to build a, a sacred monument, a sacred stone. And I want you to put this interpretation on those stones so that when your children in the future ask you, what does this mean? You will tell them how they are supposed to interpret life. They are supposed to remember that God delivered us from bondage, that God loved us so much that He saved us from our own fear and sin and destruction and He brought us through and He's the God of the impossible and we could trust Him with our very lives and when we wandered Around, He provided for our food and our forgiveness and everything. I want you to set up these sacred stones. So the sacred stones are the interpretations of the events of life that give us the way we are to think or trust or set up our paradigm for how to experience life. Now what happens is when we go through experiences, if God is not there to interpret it for us, we will put our own interpretation on that event. Now all of us have gone through some painful events in our lives. All of us have gone through some defining events in our life. And if we didn't have the people of God or God there to define for us what just happened, we will pile up a set of rocks and we will make a definition of how life works and that will become what guides us and where we will go to worship when push comes to shove. For example, I grew up in a very competitive household where your worth as a person was dependent on how well you were doing in a particular event, whether it was school, sports, relationships. And I began to set up sacred stones that said that I am only as good as my latest success and victory. I will only be loved if I can prove that I am lovable. And even though I came and accepted Jesus, and He came and He made sure that I knew I was going to go to live with Him in eternity, and all I wanted to do was honor Him, I still had that sacred stones of interpretation that defined how I lived life. And how I experienced life. And when it came into conflict with something about surrendering into the reality that I'm the beloved of God and it has nothing to do with what I have to offer and that my offerings oftentimes jam everything up, which one of the things do you think I believed? I went to the sacred stones, I went to the idol. I grew up in a situation where I, of that kind of thing, I believed that if I didn't take care of myself, nobody would. I believe that if I didn't do whatever it took and manipulate myself around and make sure I could get it to my likings, I would never get anything that mattered to me. And when push came to shove between what God would say to die to yourself or protect and manipulate so yourself would be preserved, which one do you think? I went to to bow my knee to in worship when the music started playing. What are the idols in our lives? What are those events that happened to you that nobody was there to define for you how God really saw it, how God was really there? Maybe you were hurt so badly by the ones that God put in your life who were supposed to teach you about God's love. Maybe you've had some experiences in your relationships with women that just ripped your heart out. And some pretty harsh things were said. Maybe you've had some experiences in business and and school. And and the harshness of the world defined how you experienced that event in an an idol. A 90-foot giant was set up telling you. Maybe somewhere in our lives we got addicted to something. Now, let's just pick pornography. Because the pain in my life was managed. You know, if I could just look at that picture and I could imagine what I was having, the, you know, the conversation I outside having this, it took away the pain of what I really felt about myself. I sat across the desk from a guy that got addicted like that. You know how it got started? His youth pastor sexually abused him. And his family told him he was nothing, he was worthless. And the kids at his school called him Jean Jean the Jelly Bean. And when he would look at the pictures of women, he could feel good about himself. And then he started stealing money from the church so he could go into this city right here and give money to women who would dance for him. And then they would tell him all kinds of lies about how great he was as long as he had money to give them. And then they would. And he sat across the desk from me he said, Today I tried to kill myself but I don't even have the courage to do that, I can't, I'm not even good enough to do that. You're looking at a living dead man. And what happened is he, had to, he was going to these idols that were telling him how life really worked. Gene, you're, not, you're worth nothing, you're a piece of crap. Gene, the only thing way well, you're going to feel better about yourself is if you do these kind of things, and I want you to bow down and do them right now. What are the idols? that when the music really starts playing and the dance begins, we have a decision, are we going to bow down or are we going to trust God? What is it that scares you? What is that thing that if it was out in front of you, you're going to say, I'd rather die than surrender my commitment to Jesus here? I married my high school sweetheart. <coughs> we were together five years before we got married, we were together 13 years. She was off speaking at a women's retreat and on the way back from the retreat, I got a phone call from the people with and they said, something's really wrong. You made her meet us at the doctor's office. I meet her over to the doctor's office and uh, she's, you could tell her, as soon as I saw her, you could tell something was really wrong. And long story short we take her to the hospital they do uh, the doctor there's you know by the way when, I, when I'm going into the emergency room my wife grabs my hand and says look you cannot let them sit me in the waiting room waiting for a doctor to come I need help now I need relief now if, they, if we wait I'll die I can't stand it so make sure they know we walk in the emergency room as soon as they saw her they didn't even check in they said Get, go and they put her in a the room they came in the doctor said look I need to do some CAT scans. He went and did the CAT scans. Came back in 20 minutes, and she had a brain tumor. They operated the next day. The next day, I stand in the waiting room, by the way, with about four friends, and the doctor said, I don't know what to tell you. It's as bad as it can be. It's the worst kind of cancer. It's glioblastoma level four. The chances are she'll be dead in six months. Chances are 99% she'll be dead in six months. When I heard that news, my heart exploded into a million pieces. It just broke into a million pieces. And uh, later that night, she came out of the, you know, out of in, uh, recovery. She's in intensive care, and she was awake and the, wanted to see me. And I go in to see her. First words out of her mouth is, is it Terminal. I, I was speechless. I couldn't even say anything. I just, I just said, you know. And I talked to the doctor. I said, well, you know, is this the kind of thing we need to talk about? And he said, you know what, you need to tell her when she asks. You don't need to say, but just when she asks, you need to be honest. First words out of her mouth is it terminal? I couldn't say anything. I, I, I just, honey, honey, uh, you know, I just. Uh, I love you. I'm so glad to see you're doing fine. I, I'm just going to step out real quickly and tell the people out here that are waiting. There are hundreds of people here waiting that you're doing great, you know, that you're f- back. And I went out, and I just leaned against the wall, and the friends gathered around me. I said, I don't know. I mean, I could hardly breathe. I said, what am I, you know? And he said, just tell her. Be honest. You know, you got to be honest. So I go back in, and I tell her, and we cry for a little bit. And uh, my heart just... <sighs> and right there, somewhere in there, I... Didn't consciously do anything, but I, in, my, in my mind, somewhere in my head, in my, in, in my being, I said, if I feel this bad hearing that she's going to die, if I let us get close, if I emotionally get really close and real engaged in her again, like I have in the past, and she does die, I will die. Those little pieces of my heart will be ground to sand and I won't even be able to survive. So the music started playing. And I went into my self-protected mode. Now, I didn't overtly do anything. As a matter of fact, if you'd have looked at me, you'd have thought, man, what a great husband. I mean, I was there for, I did everything for, but emotionally, I was stiff-arming. Emotionally, I'm not going to get close. I can't bear this. I mean, you know, I'm going to have, you know, and I rationalize in my mind, look, you, you know, you got your issues, but man, I'm I'm the one that's going to have to live past this. I got to survive. I got two little boys, a two-year-old and a six-year-old I got to take care of. And, you know, I'm there for you. I'll do whatever you want, but don't try to get close. Don't, but then I thought I could hide it. I thought I could make it look okay by just being available and, you know, caring and bringing people and praying. Well, my wife was very attuned to Jesus and about two days of that, and she said, why are you pushing me away? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have a, have a, have a, have a, have a you know. How do you tell her? Because I can't, you know, I've got to survive here. I can't bear it. You know, I got to think of myself. How do you say that? You can't. So I'm sitting there, like, are you sure? I mean, yes. I know you're pushed. I can feel it. You're. So I'm trying to figure out. And here's what came in my head. Well, well, just tell her like it's like you're not trying to, but it's like she's a fire. You know, and if you stick your hand to fire, if you have any sense at all, you know, you get burned. You jerk it back. And. I said, honey, it's, it's like I'm not trying to. I'm trying, not trying to be distanced, but it's, it's like you're a fire. And I mean, this is hurting me. And when I try to get close to you, it, I reflexively pull back. And as soon as I said that out loud, God in that place in my head said to me, that's right, she is a flame, but I'm still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <laughs> and he said, Gil, all your life, you have bent the knee to self-protection. You have believed that nobody would care for you if you didn't care for yourself. You believed that the only way you could survive is if you figured out a way to protect yourself and to protect your heart and to protect your image and to protect your reputation and protect your place and protect and promote and push yourself. You have bowed the knee to that 90-foot idol all your life. I am begging you this once. Please don't bow the knee to self-protection and go into the fire. I am still the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and I will go with you. I decided that I would test God. Now we prayed, of course, you know, I mean, you know, a 1000 people gathered at the hospital and stood around the block of the hospital hand to hand. Pray and sing for her. I mean, the, the, it got in the paper, and, and, and nurses found out that they were there for, to pray for my wife, and they would just come in one after another. Well, my patient sees the group, and they, they know they're here praying for you. They're wondering if you would ask them to pray for them. And my wife would say, you just go back and tell them they're here to pray for them. And yes, we'll be praying for them. And they're just like, well, you know, what's going on? And you know, you're thinking, okay, well, that's what God's going to do. But God said, now, look, I'm not making any promises. I can deliver. You need to know that. But I'm not making any promises. But I am promising this. If you go into that fire, I'll go in with you. So I dropped my self-protection. I laid it at the feet of Jesus. I said, okay, if you'll help me, I won't bow the knee to self-protection. And I started letting myself get close again, and we would have these conversations, and we would deal with issues, and we would cry together, and we would f- 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 do together, and we would plan for the children together, and we would go to these meetings together and, and talk to doctors and hold her hands and drink the barium and go to the, go to tr- just got allowed, and we were able to lay on the bed before she died and look at each other and say, is there anything else we need to talk about? And she was able to look at me and say, no, honey, and I have no regrets. We were able to look at each other and say, no regrets. And then she died. And I wish I could tell you, oh, and God delivered me from the flame. No, I had to go in the fire, and it hurt every bit as bad as I thought it might hurt. It was overwhelming.